the same Kleiner Perkins fund that had Google in it had Segway in it, but no one gives a flip that Segway was in that fund because Google returned 10,000x. And that's a dramatic example, but that's more or less how it plays out. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Gopi Rangan. Today's guest is Ian Roundtree, the founder of Cantos VC. Cantos is an early stage venture capital firm focused on frontier technologies. In today's discussions, we will hear from Ian about his journey into venture capital through fintech. We will talk about opportunities for frontier technologies to transform legacy industries. We will specifically talk about details investors like Ian look for at early stage deep technology startups. Ian, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Yeah, great to be here. I'm, I'm glad you're doing this, Gopi. It's a lot of fun. Tell us about yourself. So I, I'm originally from Florida, grew up in South Florida, the son of a single mother. My dad passed away when I was young. He was from North Carolina, so I have you know, deep Southern roots. My mother, however, grew up in the Philippines, Tokyo, and the Bay Area. Her family is mostly out here. So I, I grew up the child of a mother working in the public school district in a low-income neighborhood and my father was a Marine and, and, of course, had passed away earlier, not in combat. But my aunt had married a very successful venture capitalist out here. And so I grew up kind of between these two worlds, spending my summers with them in San Francisco and getting some exposure to the tech world and then spending you know, most of the school year in, in that uh, solidly middle class family in, in South Florida. So a child of two coasts. And then I went to school in Tennessee lived there for 10 years, worked in healthcare consulting and at a nonprofit before I moved out west. So that's, you know, we can go into how I got into tech, but that's kind of the high level. Oh, that's great. Looks like uh, although you grew up in South Florida, you always had this loyalty for the West Coast. I did, absolutely. Yeah, although my 10 years in Tennessee gave me enough of a, of a twang that that is frequently <laughs> pointed out. <laughs> how did tech come into the picture? So I um, have always been motivated, I think because I was exposed to the top, you know, 0.01% out here by way of that part of my family, but grew up, you know, with kids who are getting in trouble or doing bad things or not being doing bad things and getting blamed for it, hard circumstances. I, I was always driven to bridge those two worlds and uh, more broadly by creating a positive change with my limited time here on the planet. And so I originally thought I was going to to be a doctor, started pre-med, and then was just too ADD to focus on the individual problems and wanted to think a bit more high level just because my thinking's a bit more gestalt and moved to political science, specifically international relations, thinking I'd go on to work at the UN or WHO or something, but ended up getting frustrated by how slow moving those organizations are, mostly by my own fault. I'm just too impatient for it. And so I ended up working for a nonprofit after school, became frustrated there, the limited scale, and came to understand incentives a little better, understood then that if you could solve problems in a cash flow positive manner, 
then you could act quickly, have scalability, and maybe people make money along the way, in which case you recycle it to the next thing and create this positive resonance. And so I became very interested in social enterprise and impact investing, knew then that I needed some exposure to the for-profit world, ended up getting a consulting job in healthcare back in Nashville, where I'd gone to school, and was there for about two years, where we were a hybrid of management consulting and, and software implementation. Realized that though our staff reflected a focus on the former, the impact was largely derived by the latter, which was a smaller team of you know uh, software engineers, and then a couple of us on the project would specialize on that. And I said, you know, gosh, this is where all the uh, you know few lines of code can create so much value in a very important industry i want to spend more time on that not being an engineer knew that it was going to be more on the you know support side and ended up through my cousin getting connected to the first employee at what was then called social finance inc now better known as sofi and ended up joining them part-time while i was still in consulting and then just going all in i quit my consulting job and moved in with my aunt knuckle in their guest bedroom eight years ago um, and ended up working full-time at SoFi when they were about. And where was that? Uh, was that in the Silicon Valley? Uh, it was San Francisco, yeah. SoFi okay. is, was still in the Presidio and we worked from a little office there. There were about 12 of us originally. And so it's surreal to me to see the billboards and you know the new Rams Chargers Stadium is going to be SoFi Stadium, which I can still hardly believe. <laughs> it's uh, fascinating to hear the story all the way from Florida, Tennessee, and as you experimented different things, political science and other things, and eventually you came to Silicon Valley and giving out loans, uh, student loans, and that's one area. And how did you bridge from there to frontier technology, deep technology? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So I knew that experiencing SoFi from 10 to 100 people and wanting to get into investing, which I started doing in very small increments when I was at SoFi, you know, I was meeting all the interesting entrepreneurs and my family wanted me to go to business school. But I said, well, look, I, I'm refinancing business school loans. I can tell you the value prop is a little different than when you went, you know, 30 years ago. It's much more expensive. And I'm here in the thick of things. And if I know I'm interested in venture capital, then why don't I just take my savings that I was going to put toward business school and make 10 small angel investments and I'll blow through all my savings, but it will be one third the cost of going to business school. I can keep generating income and I'll learn specifically about what I want to learn. And I'll probably even worst case scenario, if I lose it all, which I probably will because I didn't really know what I was doing and I didn't have a big enough portfolio to cast a broad net, I'd probably still be a different kind of applicant when I try and get an associate gig at a VC job. So it made sense to me, although my family was not happy That's about it. That's a clever way to think about education. But I, yeah, I mean, you have to, I mean, we have to rethink education, but that's another topic. Again, my mother's an educator, so that's, that's part of my background too. But I knew getting into investing that I could do one of two things. I could either follow fintech downstream or I could continue seed investing, in which case I might make some fintech investments, but I also needed to keep looking for that new, new thing technology-wise. And I chose the latter, mostly because that's what I'm interested in, but also because it meant I could start with a smaller fund. And as I was, you know, angel investing, or I say cherub investing, because they were tiny checks, let me tell you, I, I couldn't participate in these later rounds. I mean, as soon as a company took seed funding from an institutional VC, it was out of my league, and they wouldn't take my, you know, $10,000 checks I was writing at the time. 
What types of topics do you focus on these days for your investments? Yeah, so I've you know if you look at my portfolio page, it seems all over the place, but we're gonna we're gonna rework that to paint it in a timeline, and there you'll see that I began investing in fintech, and then I moved to these other verticals in SaaS, and then I started saying, you know, okay, there's once we've juiced most of what's available in those industries based on this technology, we have to start looking out at the frontier of the innovation curve because innovation and economic progress tends to happen in fits and spurts, or if you will, a, a step curve or, or maybe even an S curve. And I think of that in terms of these infrastructure jumps and then application layers. And you can trace this all the way back to the printing press if you want. But in more modern terms, if we think about the integrated circuit and networked computing, and then the internet and the World Wide Web, and then AWS and mobile, and or I should say cloud and mobile, and going forward, we might get more advances along that information technology timeline. I began to look broader in what those infrastructure changes might look like, not just in advanced computing. So there you've got maybe quantum computing or even DNA-based computing of a company called Catalog that's working on that. And crypto is interesting because it's along that information technology curve, but I'm very interested in what's happening alongside that in biology and new materials and energy um, and triangulating that with an economic view that makes sense is the difficulty, which I can go into. But I've now zoomed out a bit, cast a broader net. And so I have investments in therapeutics as well as in fintech. So I see that over the years, you've made uh, more than 40 investments in startups, especially in frontier technology and deep technology. It's very difficult to raise the first round of funding when there's so much needs to be proven in terms of technology, the product itself. And most people don't understand these type of technologies that are so forward-looking. Uh, how do you make decisions? Maybe you could give one example and kind of walk through your thought process on how uh, you made the decision to make an investment. Yeah, and it's it's always evolving. If you're not learning, then you're, you're dead, you know. So it is different today, and I'll describe that because I think it's it's a bit more useful. So again, if, if we – I spoke to the technology curve, but if we zoom out in terms of – economics in business building and in investing in those businesses. You have to think of businesses at their core as organizations whose purpose is to produce returns above their cost of capital. Or that new technology allows you to have network economies, network effects in your business. And once that flywheel spins, it's very hard for a competitor to catch up. So that's why technology is important, but it's only important to the extent it gives you an ability to produce returns above your cost of capital and defend that over time. So I've seen this maybe most electrically in a portfolio company of ours called Solugen, which is using synthetic biology, CRISPR-Cas based to produce enzymes that are making hydrogen peroxide and a couple other chemicals, soon many more chemicals from plant waste from corn syrup, essentially, that we make from oil today. Now, they can make those chemicals at a lower cost than the petrochemical plants can. Not to mention they're also bio-based, but you know, let's pretend that's beside the point, again, going back to the economic value equation. They can make those chemicals in a miniaturized bioreactor that could fit in you know, a small warehouse. 
whereas their competitors, the petrochemical plants, are these 100 to $500 million facilities. And so this miniaturization allows them to have a more disparate production base, thus lowering their logistics costs. And that technology is not only better at the unit basis, but it enables a new distribution model that the incumbents can't compete with just because they can't miniaturize their plants. And so that technology that creates a new business model makes them doubly valuable. And those are the types of quote unquote deep tech or frontier tech startups that I'm most interested in is not just the technology or technology's sake, but technology allows a new business model or perhaps it creates some network effects that make that company much more valuable in the long run because investors are willing to pay a lot more for that type of business. So decarbonizing the chemical industry, that's a big mission. That's a very bold mission. How do you evaluate an opportunity like this? Like what what stage do you meet companies uh, like Solugen? What do you look for? Oh, as early as possible, because I think if you're playing the early stage game appropriately, it is in large part probabilistic. The reality of venture returns across time is that the vast majority of the returns are produced by a very small percentage of the companies. That is the the power law of venture capital returns is frequently referred to. But I learned this viscerally because in my angel portfolio of 11 companies, going back to 2012, now eight years later, seven of those companies are dead. Two are, you know, have continued to raise funding and are kind of, you know, moving along at maybe two, three X. The 10th one is sitting about four or five X and about to achieve profitability. And I'm very optimistic about maybe it returns, you know, most of the portfolio. The 11th is sitting at close to a hundred X is profitable doing $50 million in revenue and growing two and a half, three times year over year. So it doesn't really matter what the other 10 were. That is across time in the top performing venture capital portfolios there's some effect that looks like that. The same Kleiner Perkins fund that had Google in it had Segway in it, but no one gives a flip that Segway was in that fund because Google returned 10,000x. And that's a dramatic example, but that's more or less how it plays out. And so you have to embrace that and lean into the risk and instead ask, what happens if everything's right? Can this produce a type of return such that it trivializes every other company in the portfolio? And then just the hard truth of venture capital returns because it means at times, you know, an entrepreneur might know that a venture capitalist doesn't maybe care as much about their business as the one that's starting to take off. The good venture capitalist will distribute their time proportionally across the portfolio. And that's a covenant between the investor and the entrepreneur that has to be settled on and I very much believe in. But the reality is that the returns are going to be produced by a very small subset of the companies. And so I look for the potential upside, which is where is their technology that is ideally it's self-proprietary, but not necessarily because the proprietary technology hopefully enables that new business model or enables network effects that makes that company defensible over time, or as Hamilton Helmer puts it, has power that sustains that value over time and is operating in a market big enough that value is wildly disproportionate to the average cost of the investment across the portfolio. The goal being that that single, each single company could potentially return one and a half times the fund at least. 
So when you meet, say, a hundred companies, you pick a subset of them to invest in. Like, let's say you pick ten uh, percent of them, depending on your ratio. Closer to one and a half percent, but yeah. Okay, one and a half percent. So, um, let's say you meet five hundred companies, and you choose to invest in five to ten companies. Among the ten companies, you expect one of them to really make it and compensate for any losses in the other nine of them. But all right. the 500 of them look quite similar. At least the top 100 of them will look quite similar. And even the top 10 that you choose to invest in look quite similar. How do you choose the 10 out of the 500? Yeah, and again, I should point out that it's not TAM as it exists today. You have to, you know, this is where the sci-fi nut comes in. You have to think what the addressable market is going to be that might even be created by this technology. The TAM today might be zero, um, as it is for, you know, let's say quantum computing. But you have to project that forward. And so it's the future future revenue opportunity times defensibility, which is driven by the technology. And so I'll diligence the technology. But I also have to believe that the team is capable of building that future, of executing on that vision. And if they have the most mind-blowing proprietary technology I've ever seen, and the market's huge, but I get the sense that the entrepreneur is not going to be able to hire, fundraise, and sell, then it's effectively dead in the water. This is where venture capitalists will tell you it's all about the team. It's all about the team after you've answered those first couple questions of market size and eventual defensibility. That's a nuance that is, that is you know, the art of venture capital is reading people. So I, I hear a few things here all need to culminate. The the first thing is, of course, uh, defensible technology, something proprietary. And the second thing is the future projection of the market. And you look for a, a large market where this product or solution can be viable. And a large future market, yeah. Future market. It may not exist today. Like quantum, right. quantum computing is a good example. Like People aren't buying quantum computers today, but you project that Sometime in the future, there will be a huge demand. Mm-hmm. And then once you check these two, then you go to the third one, which is what a lot of people talk about, which is team. Like, can this team execute and build a business? Yeah. It's a combination of art and science. Has your, uh, has your thought process evolved in the past uh, few years, ever since you started? Okay. You betcha. I um. There's maybe a lot. Of I've made a lot too. of mistakes. Like I, if I look back my own time in the past ten years, I learned a lot from that, and I'm very thankful to the entrepreneurs that work with me. They, they were very patient. Uh, I'm glad that I have great relationships with all of them. But I'm always curious to learn how your thought process and other investors like me who have been in the game for a while. Some of what I'm articulating actually came from a process of asking why I you know, made certain investments maybe I shouldn't have or why I didn't make some I should have. And the errors of commission, that is the companies I invested in that have struggled, are largely attributable to my misread of the team's execution ability. And that often correlates to whether or not it's their first time running a business, but not always. That is only a corollary. And the data will tell you that Second-time entrepreneurs' values are about higher proportional to their performance, and so it's more or less priced in. But it's very much true that you know you make a lot of mistakes first time around, just as I have through my investing career. Entrepreneurs who are running their first business are going to make mistakes that entrepreneurs running their second business might not. 
assuming they have a propensity to learn. Um, there's plenty of people who repeat mistakes and we try and avoid those. Those are easier to see. A first-time entrepreneur is a little bit harder to judge. And so I think you have to do that by assessing their thought processes, how they reason their business from first principles, how they set objectives, what key results they're looking for, how they manage their team, and how they press on hard questions, how they admit failures and seek to correct those. I think a lot of that kind of strategic thinking and team building is distilled nicely through a finance lens in Ray Dalio's principles book, um, which I'd highly recommend to founders. But then once I've maybe learned to correct for some of those errors of commission, in venture capital, going back to the power law, often your bigger mistakes are the errors of omission. Which ones did you not invest in that you should have? And some of those for me are like depression inducing. I mean, there's just something that I completely missed. And if I look to the attribution of those errors of omission of mine, they're almost always due to sticker shock. There was some valuation, even at the seed round, that I thought was crazy. But I thought it was crazy relative to my fixed perception of what a seed stage valuation should be not to the potential upside of the business. And and that's where I started asking this question of how can I better project the potential for a business early on such that I can flex the valuation I'm willing to pay when I see something really special rather than just drawing an arbitrary line valuation-wise and say, I'm not going to invest in anything over that. Because look, if you had invested in Shopify at the IPO, you'd be up 50x. And that's better than most venture capital returns. <laughs> but you <laughs> would have bought point oh oh one percent of the company or whatever, and you would have gotten, you know, crap from your LPs or other investors for not having enough ownership. But ownership doesn't really matter. It's just a proxy. It's something we can control. And so people tend to fixate on it. So I'm trying to control a bit more for how big can the company be, which goes back to this value equals TAM times defensibility. And that's the difficult part about venture capital. On one side, you have fear of missing out, but you don't want to have a herd mentality where you follow everybody else in the same direction. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Going going back to Howard Morgan's uh, matrix of, of consensus, non-consensus, right, wrong. You want to be right and non-consensus. Well, we've covered a lot of territory today. I think if we keep talking, we'll uncover a lot more things. There's so much... Um, happening and there's so many interesting topics for us to discuss this this has been fun for me as well uh, absolutely yeah you distilled it that's that's the playbook i can retire <laughs> yeah that's your formula and i bet that next time we talk your formula has refined and i see that uh, evolution in your story as well yeah if it hasn't years. then i'm not doing my job yes i ask about uh, community leadership so what is an activity that uh, you're passionate about a nonprofit organization or some community activity. One of the the most multiplicative value creators on the nonprofit side that I've been exposed to, and I have a heck of a lot to learn. This is not my job. I should caveat. It's just an interest of mine. Is legal aid because low income people, families, communities don't have access to civil legal defense. Our laws provide a public defender for criminal offenses, but they do not for civil offenses, right? So if you're being evicted or there is a divorce case or a child custody case, if you're poor, you're SOL because we don't provide you with a defender in those cases. And 
there's some data that ha- that I'd love to see more of that implies the return to those communities of legal aid is about 21 to 1. So for $1 put into legal aid, you get $21 created in that community or for that family. That is extremely compelling to me. And it's leveraged further because I believe in using these nonprofits to solve political holes and prove maybe to our regulators that that should be a public initiative. So it's already 21 to 1, but if we can show maybe in one community, and there's a nonprofit called Open Door Legal down Bayview here in San Francisco that works on this, and if we could prove that it works there, maybe then state legislatures and the Congress eventually pass civil defense as they do public defenders for criminal defense, and you've got a far more multiplicative effort. So that's the type of thing that really interests me. And I want to learn more about it. If people know more about that, I'd love to talk to them. But Open Door Legal in, in Bayview is one that I've kept my eye on. All right. This is great, Ian. Thank you so much for spending time. I've really enjoyed this discussion. I think we could have gone for at least another hour and geek out on so many different topics, technology and venture capital. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.